0: Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists, and you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we have a really special guest joining
1: us to talk about infectious diseases, specifically among those who use drugs and how this intersects
0: with COVID-19. But hang on. Before we start talking with our guest, we have some exciting news we want to share with you. We've been working super hard the last few months while on hiatus to expand our vision for Global Caveat. We've been so thankful to have support from our listeners, subscribers, and Patreons to make these big moves to grow and support y'all better.
1: So please join us next week for our virtual Global Caveat reveal party to learn more, play some games, and digitally hang out. We will have a special opening with science communication comedian Shannon O'Dell
0: and I hope to see you all there. Also, I want to mention that today is August 21st, 2020, and we're (laughs) still deep in living during this COVID-19 pandemic. We hear a lot about how the pandemic is impacting the economy, but we don't hear very much about other health issues going on. You know, Susanna and I are not infectious disease experts, but luckily the world of public health is full of a variety of amazing people. And we have someone here with us today to talk about these things, Dr. Beth Linus.
1: Beth is an infectious disease epidemiologist whose research interests include improving the development, evidence-based, and use of digital health technologies to understand social determinants of health and improve health outcomes. She completed her postdoctoral training and graduate degrees, PhD, and master's in infectious disease epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. From 2015 to 2017, she served as a science and technology policy fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Beth is deeply passionate about the use of data to inform public health policy, and she is an active science communicator working to help scientists communicate their science. You can follow her on Twitter at Beth
0: Linus. That is spelled B-E-T-H-L-I-N-A. now let's talk to Beth. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we start talking about everything, just wanted to check in and see how your week is going.
2: You know, it's the middle. It's like month 27 of this pandemic. (laughs) And every week there seems to be a new sort of pandemic topic. And right now there's a lot of discussion about, you know, returning to schools and what does that look like? And how do we keep people safe in college campuses? And this week has been really interesting to see that unfold not surprisingly we're seeing a lot of people having to pivot to online learning which a lot yes. of public health specialists could have told you but you know well how to get the ear of the people that make decisions someday
0: they'll listen to us I think <laughs> right
1: <laughs> first they have to think of us as experts and then they have to listen to us right yeah I think we're often the hindsight I told you so folks right in public mm-hmm. health people are like yeah we heard you and then in hindsight they were like yeah you were right but by then it's too late. yeah I mean but- the thing that's
2: tricky about public health is that if you don't see anything like we've done our jobs
1: mm-hmm, and yep. if you
2: do see something then we haven't and it's very stressful and then there's a lot of sort of you know how do we do this how do we do that um, and I don't you know, there are some really good evidence-based methods of sort of mitigating transmission and we've never really stuck with them right like
1: mm-hmm.
2: we're you know social distancing still and mask wearing of course, hand washing you know I don't know really the status now of contact tracing. I heard, te- you know, testing is actually on the decline. So, you know, there are, we're just not sort of full steam ahead on all these methods, which is sort of shocking, but it's America.
0: America. America.
1: <laughs> well, I'm really excited to talk to you today because at least on my end of things, you know, in being in public health, COVID updates are pretty regular Um, how we talk about COVID. You know, we do talk about social distancing. We talk about what is it going to look like, like what is happening and the politics of it. But I haven't heard a lot of people talk about how this intersects with your area of expertise, which is people who use drugs. And so, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that. Like, what what's the connection between folks who use drugs and COVID? Yeah, I mean,
2: it's a really hard topic to talk about because a lot of our services, our social services for people that have mental health disorders or, or um, substance use disorders have been cut off in them. Um or they've been reduced greatly, and they're not able to get, you know, the, their medication if they need it, or see counselors if they need it. Um, and that, you're absolutely right. We, we haven't seen a lot of data on what this disruption means. But then there's also sort of the intersection of what do the sort of respiratory illnesses do to people that use drugs if they already have some other underlying conditions, or if their drug use affects their lungs. Um, we don't know the impact of COVID in that those populations. I imagine we will get data once, you know, we're getting a lot of demographic and data now, and we're learning, we're drilling down into some populations, but um, sometimes you just got to wait for the data to come, and for people to sort of step forward, too, you know, if they got COVID or not, we don't know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then there's just other sort of ramifications in terms of, for a little bit, there were some, you know, people weren't going to the hospitals, and, and if there were, you know, I don't know, I don't think I saw statistics around like if overdoses increased during this time, um, a lot of people are isolated, uh, you know, people don't have the support m- maybe in place for them to sort of um, sustain not using drugs. They might have relapsed onto using drugs. It's, so there's a lot that we know we need to figure out. And I, I personally, and this could be totally wrong, that I haven't seen a lot of literature discussing sort of the state of, you know, substance use disorders among, during COVID. There was a really nice piece by Dr. Nora Blockhoff. She wrote a really nice piece in the Annals of Internal Medicine, I believe, about sort of what does this mean for people that are have substance use disorders? I sort of summarized some of what she was mentioning and the concerns with um, people okay. that need extra services.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's back up a little bit because what I'm hearing a lot of from you is we just don't really know much about how COVID intersects with um, people who have substance abuse disorders, uh, substance use disorders, excuse me. Well, what do we know about other infectious diseases then and how other infectious diseases intersect with substance use? So, I mean, when we talk about substance use and, you know, there's lots of substances,
2: um, (laughs) but I primarily focus on it and I did my doctoral research among people that use heroin and opioids. And there's many ways that one uses those drugs. You can smoke them, you can inject them, um, snort in some cases. And generally, and, and, you know, when we, Injecting drugs is a considered a high-risk activity because a lot of individuals may share equipment and that puts people at risk for other sort of infectious diseases like HIV or hepatitis C, as well as other sort of, um, you could get endocarditis and bacterial infections when you use drugs uh, or if you don't clean the needle and you're just using the same one over and over again. So they're high-risk population generally for acquiring other infectious diseases because they might also have other high-risk behaviors, including maybe unsafe, unsafe sex practices that Maybe they're you know to get another way to get HIV, but also sort of STDs as well. So there are several infectious diseases that can go along with people that um, use drugs, especially Mm -hmm. intravenously.
1: What would you Mm -hmm. say is the? I mean, this is a big question, so I don't know how you would really answer this. But for you, what's the biggest concern then with COVID and then um, drug users? Access to care. That's my biggest Mm -hmm. concern because
2: you know methadone, which is a medication people take, and other. buprenorphine sometimes you have to be you have to go and take the medication or you have to get the prescription and you have to sort of be able to stay consistent on it and my concern is that people sort of were like you know so paranoid or scared to go you know do their day-to-day that they sort of also stopped going to the doctor and for a while Mm -hmm. you know doctor's offices weren't you know operating We, um like maybe on emergency purposes um, emergency um situations but and then the other thing that concerns me because a lot of people that do use drugs or have a substance use disorder have also other mental health disorders as well they sometimes go um, hand in hand and the isolation could be really bad uh it could have been hard on people and we all have different ways of coping and people could be using more drugs at this time um and if you're using more drugs you have an increase of overdose and you know ambulances were already you know there was just like so many so much energy was in covid that other any disease, not even infectious disease, sort of, we don't really know what happened. I mean, we know, for example, we know vaccination rates sort of people were concerned that they were going to go down. Mm -hmm. Um, So I imagine that we're going to see maybe an increase in drug use or maybe an increase of overdose, um, fatal and non-fatal. I don't, I don't know,
1: but that's just what Mm -hmm. I suspect. And like you mentioned, I mean, not just the increase in drug use or even overdose, but the mental health aspect as well. Right. And, you know, what, what does it mean for Folks who lack access to care, what does it mean for their physical health and their mental health? Um,
2: yeah, and yeah, and, and we know that telehealth, you know, came in strong and everyone, you know, we, were, we got a lot of regulations were changed around so people could use FaceTime and, you know, talk to their doctors and, you know, substance use disorder. I don't know. I mean, people that have substance use disorder may or may not have access to that or they might not mm-hmm. have a stable phone number. They might use burner phones or they might, they just might not have a smartphone, um, and they weren't able to connect with their doctor, so they have an the, the interruption in care is definitely a concern of mine. And and generally, just when there's sort of upheaval in someone's life that you know who suffers from substance use disorder or a mental health issue, these big
1: changes and challenges and are, are hard for anybody. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um. So I, what am I? I want to word this carefully because I don't want to come off as like being stigmatizing. Um. But I can very much see some folks who don't quite understand this, uh, the struggle of substance use and how that, how that affects people, them saying, well, the pandemic is a good thing then because then they can withdraw and they can like just cut off and become better. Uh, what was your response to something like that?
2: I mean, the thing I think that's really misunderstood about substance use disorders generally is this notion of addiction and dependence. And they're two separate sort of topics. And dependence really is sort of the biological necessity that you sort of, you, you become, you need the drug to get through your day um and then as you build tolerance you need more of that drug to get through your day so addiction is really the behavior um it's really um it's characterized sort of by the inability to stop using a drug um and and a failure to sort of work and meet social obligations or family obligations and um which is different from the physical dependence on the opioid or, or heroin mhm
1: mm-hmm.
2: and i think to your point so withdraw uh from A drug that affects your brain chemistry is not pleasant and it is actually could be actually if you don't do it well, you could, could, you could die. And so it's not something if you are, have been using, um, you know, drugs for a long time or or heroin or opiates for a long time, it's not actually a really good idea just to go just to stop using drugs It can harm you more than than help you. Mm -hmm. And that, you know the under so there's a really big behavioral component because there's a, it's a mental health um issue as well. You don't really just stop. It's really difficult. I mean, I if that was the case and they individuals could stop at any time and they could have you know mm-hmm. done it once yeah. and then not used again. And so that actually it's sort of it, it's a it's a statement that's just comes from a place of not understanding. Sort of um, I would say a, a dependence and addiction and and
1: drug use. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, there's definitely yeah. this component of compassion that's needed it sounds like right I mean there's sure a lack of understanding but also with that comes I mean I'm a big like compassionate like person who's like I think we just need to better understand but also feel for these people because if you know it's hard like withdrawal like you said if it's this biological thing and it can be Mm life-threatening I don't know like I hope that people are compassionate about that fact Yeah. And can understand why it can be so difficult. Yeah. I
2: mean, I think it's, you know, it's, you know, we talk about COVID, it's just like the flu, which it's not, you know, a lot of people try to (laughs) also associate sort of withdrawal as sort of like the flu and it starts out sort of like that. Um, but it's not, Mm -hmm. it's very, very, very unpleasant. And yeah, I think
0: compassion is, you know, needed. And, um, I feel like a lot of people just, if they can't directly relate to something, then they just automatically like, discount it or they're just oh, like, oh, it's fine like it's super easy to do or like they'll compare it to someone like you know they know someone who quit smoking or they know someone who stopped drinking coffee which are very different types of things like yes or netflix all, like, i'm addicted oh, to God. netflix <laughs> that is that's just ridiculous <laughs> statement yeah, like yes yeah. we all binge sometimes on netflix yeah. but that's a very different use of those words and yeah um, and yeah i mean um, and also <laughs>
2: with, with substance use there's often some sort of underlying trauma and and mm. that might you know can be brought up. It could, I mean, if you're isolating during quarantine, like there are lots of things that could have happened that trigger people to either, you know, to, to use more heavily or just to use generally. Um, sure. Yeah. And yeah. It, it is true that people sort of, and that's sort of the case. I would say across sort of diseases and experience with um, having a disease is you people really don't understand until they ha- experience themselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And a kind of an unfortunate thing, and it's not something we talk a lot about, but um, you see a lot of individuals become activists once they've had family members ill and they've been through the system or the medical system. Yeah. And they realize how difficult it is and how insurance works and how doctors are and you know, how they, how you have one care team for one, you know, cardiology and then you have pulmonology, you know, there's all these, mm-hmm. you learn so much when you have or help when you have a disease or you're helping a loved one that has a disease That it is one of those experiences that really does stay with you
0: for, yeah. for the rest of your life. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um. I know we talked about it a little bit before, but just talking about it again, how, you know, we're in this, like currently living through the COVID-19 pandemic and that might be triggering and causing trauma for people and like, you know, instigate them to restart using a substance or, you know, anything afterwards they've maybe not been using for years. Like what, are there like certain populations or groups that might be more vulnerable to that? Or is there anything, I mean, I know there's such an issue with social services right now, but anything that could be done or suggestions of what should be done to reach those people? (laughs) I mean, that's a great
2: question. And I don't, you know, there's a lot of different sort of subpopulations of people that use drugs. There's sort of what we, there's like high functioning drug users, which I don't love the term, you know, people um, maybe that use you know, we're using opioids. You know, illicitly, like pill pills that weren't assigned, weren't prescribed to them, and they were taking them. Versus someone that's sort of an injection drug user, and um, maybe, and then also also homeless or something along those lines. It's a really great question. Um, I mean, I think quarantine is a struggle for me. You know, mm-hmm. I and and I have a job, and I'm working from home. And you know, I've had moments where I'm like, oh my god, there's what am I going to do? So I yeah. I think it's pretty much. Anyone with a substance use disorder is, I would imagine, finding this time challenging. I mean, you know, there are medications you can take for um, for opioid use disorder, and those are prescribed, and you take them under the care of a physician. And if you know you can continue to take those, and they help with, um, you know, they help you not use drugs. But if the prescription ran out, or if they chose not to use it, take it. I mean, it's there's a lot of things that sort of can happen.
1: And are those prescriptions medication. expensive without insurance?
2: I, you know what? That's a great question. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I don't know. I um, that feel like question.
0: in America, it's safe to assume yes. <laughs> <Like, laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. the reason
1: I asked that is because I think about with unemployment rising, a lot of people are probably losing their insurance. So then, if mm-hmm. they're also um, yeah. dealing with substance use disorders, then that's probably really tough.
2: I mean, yeah, it's a great point. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, losing insurance. I don't think there I don't think there were interruptions to Medicaid and Medicare, um, but, you know, those are a lot of individuals who if they have other underlying conditions or there have other issues, they could be on Medicaid and they were, you know, they're still able to access care. But it's a good question. I don't know. It would be interesting to see how many individuals with substance use disorder lost their insurance and what happened. Yeah,
1: my hope is that it expands to cover more people.
2: Right. I mean, there's, yeah, yeah. And there's good, and there's actually really good data to show that like in States that did expand Medicaid, they have done a better job of sort of addressing and helping the opioid epidemic um, mm-hmm. because of the additional services that come with Medicaid that you can sure. use and offer people. Yeah.
1: I have a question about, um so we talked about accessing health services, but what about accessing the drugs themselves? Cause with people being home, um, Do you have any insight onto like where then they are getting the drugs, especially if it's the youth population and they're home with their families? What does that look like? How do they get yeah. those drugs? Yeah, that's a, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so you
2: know, dip, there's a lot of ways one can get drugs. You can get illicit drugs, you know, buying them on the street, buying them off people. However, you know, people who, however, you're going to procure, procure drugs in a non-pandemic, I, I imagine that it's harder during a pandemic, but you still are able to do it, and mostly because your body really needs it, and so you become sort of you have to use it. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of youth, it's a great question, and um, you know if if there are opioids or other medications in the home for whatever reason, and and you know youth find them and take them, that would be a concern because they're very addictive and they're not meant for. I mean, the, the dose that's for an adult might not be for a kid, um, mm-hmm. but it's not actually something I really thought about during the um, pandemic. That's a really good question, and I would really yeah. love to learn more.
1: Yeah, I wonder if some folks would have developed um, new addictions or dependencies too. Because, like you said, like if they if they can't have access to one thing that they typically use, and then they find something else in the home to you yeah. know as a substitute, and that becomes a new thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, you if they have access to opioids, not just heroin, but like you know mm-hmm. opioids, they can they can still use those. That's a good question. Or developing develop for whatever we, re- I mean, not whatever reason, if they go on, you know, start using meth because meth you can make. Um, it's mm-hmm. not you know. But again, I don't know if that would be the case. Um, there's, there, there are very different classes of drugs. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: But it, it's possible that, you know, if you are dependent on something and you sort of do anything you can to get relief if you're feeling like you're going through withdrawal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm also curious about, you know, the increase of telehealth and then having that as a method of getting prescriptions, um, the amount of people that may or may not be abusing that system to get medications that they would otherwise not necessarily have.
1: Right. Yeah, Cause I, like, I feel
0: like, I feel like, I mean, most people probably are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, but there's always that group of people that are a little bit not doing the right thing or, or they're, right? they're, they're,
2: drug, they're, they're sort of having behaviors that are sort
0: of more drug seeking. Is, I think what you're trying to say. I feel, but, yeah, Maybe, yeah. maybe that, but maybe I'm all like, I'm also kind of just talking about people that might just straight up be lying to sell drugs that they're just like getting more prescriptions
2: right yeah i mean but yeah that's possible but there's also that yeah sadly it was happening (laughs) there were yeah i I mean people going you know going to different doctors and asking for prescriptions though now we have sort of this pdmp the prescription drug monitoring programs that um Uh, sort of help prescribers and pharmacists um, hmm. look at and see how many time someone's filled a prescription or how many different prescriptions they have um to prevent sort of the over prescribing a repeat Mm -hmm. prescribing yeah i didn't know about that yeah there are different they're all it's actually i think they're each state has a pdmp and yeah oh okay
1: huh? and it's not just i mean it's prescription drug it's in general yeah, yeah, yeah 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 So let's talk about harm reduction then, because yeah. we did actually do an episode previously with someone who also researches um, drug use, substance use disorders. And we talked about harm reduction then um, and, you know, but, using non-stigmatizing language and stuff. But I think I think in this case, I imagine there are some unique challenges to that, <laughs> as we've kind of already talked about. So, you know, as someone who does this work full time, like what what are your what have you seen or what are your ideas on harm reduction?
2: So I'm actually currently not working in the harm reduction or in, sorry, in the opioid space currently right. and the work I'm doing with my, my job. But um, mm-hmm. so I just preface that I'm, sure. I stay on top of literature and, and the field. But I mean, you know, when we talk about harm reduction, we're talking about sort of it's not about abstinence. It's not about getting people to stop. It's about getting people to, from doing engaging in high risk behavior to lower risk behavior and and mm-hmm. and that sort of that's where sort of needle exchanges come in so if people are going to be using you know using drugs and they're injecting them we would prefer them to be injecting them with a clean needle needle each time it can prevent sort of the spread of other infectious diseases though it it may not prevent someone from overdosing you know in that sense Mm -hmm. but needle exchange programs have also been very helpful in helping people get into treatment programs and so you know I don't know actually what the status of sort of um, needle exchanges are at the state um, or how they're being run um, and, and interestingly, how they're informing their community, the people that use their services, how they're informing them that they have different hours or, you know, reaching out to them. That's something I would be interested in learning. And related to sort of safer sex practices, also, if there's education or materials, you know, I'm trying to sort of think, you know, we, schools close, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm jumping out of sort of the injection drug using space to like, high-risk sexual behavior, but, you know, schools close early in, Mar- in March, and some kids get, you know, they've learned a lot about sexual education and reproduction, you know, I, I, they didn't have those, you know, those classes, and I don't know, you know, the, I don't, we don't know sort of those effects either if people are going to be engaging in more risky sex practices. Mm-hmm. So in terms of those are sort of the main, there are other harm reduction methods, um, but I don't know the
1: impact the COVID's had on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I kind of wonder what, like, the logistics of the for example, a needle exchange program. Like I know stores now are like, oh, we're sanitizing every however long, and you know yeah. wear a mask and do all these things. But what if you're, what if you're homeless and you don't have a mask and yeah. you need to go into the needle exchange
2: location? Yeah, and it's very common for people that are chronic substance users to be unstably, ho- unstably housed, and that is, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, unstably housed mm-hmm. and or living uh, in sort of maybe an abandoned housing unit or mm-hmm. and there are a lot of people in that in in that unit that's also sort of a risk for COVID right like you're mm-hmm. coming together in in your group that's a risk for COVID and if you're sharing needles that's a risk for other infectious diseases so um yeah, yeah it is a concern and you know I haven't we know a lot about what happened in the prison populations and how um it was well first we saw that COVID just flew into them mm-hmm. um we don't have so we have information on that but we don't have like really good information sort of on homeless populations in there and the impact of covid on them but not Mm -hmm. just on their substance use but on their health care
0: (laughs) yeah yeah uh uh, i want to i know this isn't your domain but i want to kind of just like focus a little bit on the homeless population a little again or like continue on a train of thought that i've had a lot recently um i'm based in new york city and um a lot of people aren't able to pay their rent right now. And starting in like December and January, people are going to start getting evicted. And I'm sure that's the same in not like, not just my city and plenty of other cities and other towns and other places, right? People are going to start being able to get evicted and it's going to make this giant increase in a homeless population. And I like, what do you think, like just, you know, this doesn't really relate necessarily to infectious disease or anything, um, but more so your work in, I mean, not, doesn't relate to drug use, Um, specifically, but relates more to like your like understanding and working with infectious disease. Can you think of like, or can you like, what do you see happening in this future where there's this increase of homeless population and then these resources that aren't available? I I mean, I
2: think, yeah, I think generally speaking, if we have a large, you know, large homeless population and people are trying to access You know, um, shelters were putting, you know, they could be overfilled, and that is also a really good place for disease to spread easily. Um, You know, people sort of, you can see the rise of other um, sort of not good coping behaviors. So, you know, engaging in high-risk sex or drinking a lot or, you know, that would be a concern. And then, um, again, if they're homeless and they're out of a job, they're probably not covered with any sort of medical care. I don't know, you know, if they're on Medicaid or not. So, um, I mean, housing stability is actually very important to sort of your health and public health. Um, It's a big indicator of other issues Um, that it could be bad. I want to use a bigger word than bad, but it it gives me great concern for public Mm -hmm. health if we have a large number of people who are no longer stably housed. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's actually hard to wrap your head around. Well, I I was sort of thinking, like, where would you start? It's
0: really something to wrap your head around. Yeah, I mean, it's something I don't think that, you know, America in general currently, like no city does a good job of taking care of their homeless population. So I don't know what they're going to do suddenly when it increases dramatically.
2: Yeah, I mean, you're yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, there aren't enough shelters. And there's a lot of, you know, negative associations with people in their people's minds of, of people who are homeless its their, you know mm-hmm. all those wrong stereotypes it was their fault they did something wrong they right. you know
1: yeah and even with shelters i mean there's limited number of beds but now i imagine there's even higher limits of how many people they can accept per day to get
2: housing right, for that right. night yeah. Right. I mean, that's a good point too. Like they have to keep some social distance if they have too many people in a, in a, um, a shelter that's not good for COVID spread. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there aren't generally, there are some shelters that are just for women and children. There are some shelters that are just for men. There are some shelters that are families. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm guessing a lot of people, I mean, hopefully people are able to get sheltered. Um, but if we have a really big, housing crisis and people are evicted we're not going to have the ability to help everyone it's very true Mm -hmm.
0: um the weight of all these things make like the anxiety builds up in me (laughs)
2: yeah i mean if you start right it's really easy to start thinking about sort of the i like to say like the cascade of what could happen right and then that gets really overwhelming it's it's definitely Mm -hmm. i mean those are sort of what the social determinants of health are right all those things that are not not really i mean they are related to your medical state but they you know your housing your income food deserts, and then other sort of maybe past traumas or where you live you know these are all the social determinants that as they are affected um you expect to see sort of worse or more health outcomes that are poor mm-hmm.
1: you've given us a lot to think about yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's. i yeah, feel like yeah, i have uh, to
2: say I feel, I feel like i haven't done it justice like i feel like i've sort of just stra- mean, scratched the surface and there's a lot to talk about that I'm exploring.
0: right. We'd need hours, days, <laughs> um, entire degrees. <laughs> um. So you've talked about a lot of, you know, this cascade of getting overwhelmed and like thinking of all these things and just like going down that rabbit hole. But yeah. since you work in epidemiology and you're so closely related to all of this, what are you doing during this time mm-hmm. to take care of yourself and to preserve like your mental well-being? Yes. great question.
1: Share share your resources and yeah, coping that's mechanisms. A, <laughs> that's
2: a good question. Um, so for me personally, um, I gotta move my body. Like, I um, I mm. I'm home all day. I my I have a little nook where I sit, and I'm wanting to get standing desk, but I haven't. And so for me, it's really important to move my body so I can like get out of my head. I think I said mm. I mean, my job is pretty like computer foot. Like, I'm on the computer all day, and I'm typing and thinking a lot about other topics, not about just not COVID. And so I, when I'm done with work, I'm still at work, if you will. And so I have to make sure I move my body and get out of the house a little bit. I, what other, what other things have I done to, I have been, I mean, like, it's pretty cliche, right? Like I did a puzzle, but I didn't make sourdough bread, but I did a puzzle. I've done some I'm online impressed shopping. impressed with
0: everyone making bread.
2: I mean, that Same. was, me too. I was really impressed with that too. Um I'm getting a lot, I'm getting a good night's sleep. So I'm not trying to like stay up and I'm trying to like keep my schedule from, you know, I still get up when I would get up when I was going into work. Um, And then I also really try to unplug from work when work is done. So I don't, you know, there was that cartoon from the New Yorker that's like, is this working from home or living at work? (laughs) I don't want it to be living at work. And so I try really hard to keep sort of work life boundaries. It's tough um, because it's sort of like, well, what else could you eat? Like, you you don't have anywhere to go, right? That's mm-hmm. sort of like, you know, when I try to get off my work day and I'm like, I you know, I got to get off my work day and so, you know, people are like, well, where are you going? Um, <laughs> um, I play and cuddle with my dog cause that's good therapy. Um, yeah. And you know, I binged on Netflix, like any good millennial would do, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and I've been reading and, and like reading and, and I have been keeping, as much as I can sort of involved and in, in understanding sort of the spread of COVID and what's going on and, and that sort of thing. I've been helping, I like helped a school, a school determine their sort of how are they going to do their opening and how are they going to
1: keep their wow. kids safe? I've worked with that. Oh. Yeah. Um, and just sort of little one-offs here and there to help. That's people. awesome. Mm-hmm. I, this is a bit of a off topic, but you mentioned the school thing. I saw this one teacher post, a picture of his classroom and how his school was like this is how we're gonna do social distancing and help protect and they had installed a half shower curtain in front of his desk that only spans the width of his desk <laughs> what and they're like it was like it was, it was like
2: it was like clear is that that's so he could see but he was Yes.
1: Out. so so you know classroom on the classroom wide but his classroom is his desk is like this big compared to the rest of the classroom and, and then like in front of it they hung a, a clear shower like you know the plastic ones yeah and that only that doesn't even go all the way to the floor but that doesn't matter it doesn't even span like the whole room or anything and he's like what's the point like- <laughs> well and and that
2: assumes that he just is he just supposed to stand behind that all the time but like, most teachers I know when I was growing mm-hmm. up you know would walk around and go to the yeah. or the whiteboard yeah. interact <laughs> with their students um and I understand that to the extent like we're in COVID times we have to change our behavior mm-hmm. but I would agree that's not um super effective, especially if they didn't have any sort of protection from the
1: like the kids in the room are still in the room and they can still spread to each other. And it's a closed space, yeah. I mean, those particles are gonna just fly around. Yeah. Land places.
2: Yeah. I mean I think it's sort of the thing about the spread of COVID in in schools and in higher ed it, it it is surprising to me that it's so surprising to people. Right. I mean one of the main things about, you know, highly infectious diseases, things that are easily transmissible, which COVID is pretty transmissible, um, they thrive on groups. That's what they want to do. Like, I always mm-hmm. talk about virus wants a virus. Like They want to be in a room, like they want to be on a cruise ship. It's mm-hmm. more people, more susceptible people. And so when we put a bunch of people in the classroom who really have sort of mostly had minimal movement because we took them out of school in March, and there was this whole narrative that like, kids don't get it. We in public health never knew that wasn't really the going in stance of us. It was more like, well, we don't know. They haven't really been exposed. Um, Mm. Some kids have. And so now that we're back in school and I don't know, like if schools are really able to do social distancing and I don't know what the hybrid plans look like. I don't know how like window situations, you know, airflow it is surprising to me when so many people are like, oh my God, there's like so many cases in the school. It's, <laughs> it's like, it's like, yeah, we didn't, we opened in a time where we still had substantial community spread in some
1: areas. Yeah. 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 I'm um, really hoping we are in a better spot by this time next year.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I do too. I mean, I've been telling people, like I'm from Colorado. I haven't, uh, I was home. Uh, I go home every Christmas, uh, Christmas and New Year's. Um, mm-hmm. and then I try to go home in the summer and I see my parents on Thanksgiving, and I will not have seen my folks, if I can make it out to Colorado for the Christmas to New Year's, it'll be a full year that I would have physically seen my parents, and that's actually the longest I've gone. I mean, I Facetime them now, but, like, right. I haven't been with them. Um, that's and a long that time. Is, yeah. Yeah, it's also, it's yeah. very odd. Like, yeah, it's weird to me.
1: Thankfully, Colorado yeah. is doing okay. Yeah, no, I, I saw,
2: I, I, Colorado is doing pretty well. I also saw the governor um, is allowing last call now to be 11 o'clock instead of 10 o'clock for drinking at bars I guess yeah. I saw that today um yeah I don't know I see a situation where we have to go like back into a lockdown and I, I don't think we will I mean no, I don't want to ever say never but I I don't think we're ready for like full out. I don't think we're ready for people to go and just start living their lives normally and I'm right. a little worried that because school's starting and carpools pools and you know it's gonna mm-hmm. become pretty easy for people to sort of slip back into what they're doing absolutely and yeah,
1: yeah. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You have imparted sure. some
0: knowledge. I know it's just scratching the surface, but you uh-huh. know, we all gotta start somewhere.
1: Totally.
2: And I think it's great that you already have talked about the language of sort of substance use and yeah and addiction and the appropriate work. I mean, that's actually something that's really important to me as well. Um, yeah. we need more like more people to sort of have this empathy and understanding it's not, you know, drug use and substance use disorders are not moral tailings. They relate their diseases, and I think we're getting, like, getting better at it, but part of that is language, and part of that is just understanding sort of the c- circumstance
0: of how people end up becoming, you know, dependent on these drugs. And for anyone who's listening right now who is wondering about what episode that is, it is Substance Use with Brooke Wilde. So you can go back and listen to that one after this one if you missed it.
1: All right, that's the episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Beth Linus, for talking with us.
0: As a reminder,
1: you can reach her at Twitter at Beth, Linus, B E T A H L I N A S. And the resources and
0: transcripts for this episode are all up on our website.
1: As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at
0: gmail.com
1: or on Instagram
0: and Twitter at globalcaveat. And thank you to all of you, our listeners and supporters, for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Hot Coco for producing our music. Thanks for listening.